Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. This episode is devoted to this year's Bioinformatics Contest organized by the team from the uh, ITMO University and the Bioinformatics Institute in Russia. And uh, today with me are Alexei Sergushchev, who is one of the organizers of the contest, and also Gennady Karatkevich, who is the first prize winner uh, of the contest. To start with, I, I usually ask my guests to, to introduce themselves. We already met Alexei uh, last year. Uh, I think it was episode number 18, so you can go and listen to that episode to to hear about Alexei. But uh, Gennady, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a student at Itmo University in Russia, which is an organizer of this contest. I take part in a lot of programming competitions. I occasionally win some of them. And, uh, well, bioinformatics contest is different from most usual programming contests, but it was still very interesting. So here I am. So, uh, you are primarily known as a uh, very successful uh, competitive programmer, but what is your relationship with, with bioinformatics? Uh, is it, is it one of your interests or uh, is it just uh, like another fun competition for you? Oh, well, 50-50, I'd say. Uh, I, I'm mostly interested in the informatics part of bioinformatics, naturally. Um, so, in fact, my master's thesis was under Alexei's uh, supervision. It was connected to bioinformatics, but, again, uh, I was mostly doing the informatics part of that. So, yeah, I guess I'm just interested in the informatics part of uh many things if they have this part right that that makes sense but uh you're so you're a student and what what do you study is it just computer science department or yeah i i it was just computer science yes and uh of course congratulations on your stellar performance in the contest not only uh did you get the first prize but you got it with a huge huge margin thank you what did you what did you think about the contest? What were your uh, impressions? Yeah, I, I guess what can describe this contest the best for me was uh, the fact that I arrived from uh, Japan the day of the contest, and then I wasn't sure I was going to take part at all. But uh, when I read the problems, I found them very interesting, so I just had to go into the contest and. Uh, Basically, I didn't sleep too much because I didn't have enough time otherwise. But I was so excited that I just continued to work on the problems instead of going to sleep. So I guess that says more than words. Yeah, that, that's a great compliment to uh, to the contest. And in, in Japan, were you participating in another competition? Yeah, that's true. It was... Uh, it's called Headquarter World Tour Finals. It was organized for the first time. Uh, and yeah, it's a programming contest, not related to biology. I was de there like for several days and just came back right then. You've participated in a countless number of, of these contests. What do you 
experience do you do you get anxious or or are you are you used to do you, what what kind of emotions uh, are you going through when when you're participating for sure i'm very competitive <laughs> so i usually get anxious but uh, it, it, dep it depends like uh mostly i try to st stay calm and uh, when you have participated in a lot of contests you you i guess yeah you, you get used to it but every time it is something new some new experience so alexey what were your impressions of this contest what what stood out to you well first of all it was from our perspective it was pretty great technically so as you can remember like in the first one and second one there was some problem with tests so we had to fix a few things during the contest but this uh, for the third time we finally got it done almost perfect so there was some uh, clarification issues with the uh, problem statements but otherwise technically it went fine like with Vitalik Aksanov who is another main co-organizer of this contest so we and bioinformatics team we looked thoroughly f uh, on the contest table and waited and asked uh, people around us whether the Gennady will be participating or not because like by mid-contest I think or like after six hours six hours or so of the contest or the thought of the contest he was not there yeah I, I was flying did you not have Wi-Fi on your plane? I didn't bother I wanted to sleep more during the flight but then yeah, so uh, after this, about third of the contest, uh, another our student, uh, Nikolai Budin, was on a first or second place, I believe. So we rooted for him. But then, when Gennady arrived, we still rooted for Nikolai. But when... Oh. So basically, <laughs> basically, when... Uh, so with Vitalik Sonov, we uh, stayed to ask to reply for the questions. So when I went to sleep for a while, around uh, midnight, St. Petersburg time, so Gennady was at, more or less at the end of the table, like he started st uh, solving something, but then when I wake up like four hours later, so he was like at the, sec at the second place after Kola, after Nikolai. So there was some competition, but then like after, several more hours so he went ahead yeah but so it was kind of dramatic but then Gennady won <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's go through the problems and we will start with the qualification round which lasted one week uh, it was um, in the beginning of February and uh, the first problem was was called beast population the author was the the jury and uh, whatever that means and the tests were by grigory shavkoplas and the essence of the problem was that uh, you have a population of bees and uh, their population uh, number is changing according to a certain law uh, basically a quadratic function so the population at the next day 
is uh, some coefficient times the population on this day minus some other coefficient times the squared population on the previous day. And uh, a nice touch to this problem is that this is actually a very realistic law. So it, at first it appears contrived uh, because you're just given this quadratic formula and uh, your first thought is... Uh, well, they just <laughs> came up with the quadratic formula just because it's a you know simple formula to analyze. But actually, this this corresponds to a, a sort of well-known logistic uh, logistic growth uh, function in population dynamics. So so that's nice. Although it wasn't um, explained, I, I think it would it would be uh, more uh, interesting if if this was motivated a bit. Uh, but the the task was to to calculate the limit of the population. So if you uh, if you let this process continue for some time, does it converge to a certain population level? And and if so, then what is that limit of of the population? First, first of all, I would say that what the jury means. So that basically for the quantification round, the tried to think about to make a problem but pretty simple one uh, like that can be solved with more or less with a formula so that's we discussed a lot what could be done there so we googled a lot so finally we found this really nice population model which is very simple on one hand and can be solved with a formula and well it has pretty decent biological background so that's why we have it, and that's why it's jury. So it's uh, it was highly discussed inside the team, inside the jury team. How big was the jury this time? Well, so there was a lot of uh, people involved. So you can find it on the contest website. So actually, I don't know the number exact number. I guess it's uh, around twelve people total, and so basically we. Not with all the people, but with some team, we sit around and chatted and tried to make make a problem for this specifically. And actually, uh, just to make people understand like how the how the pro how whole process works uh, by cre of creation of creating the problems. Basically, we first uh, everyone from the jury and from our friends, we ask people to submit the ideas. Of the problems, and then we discuss how they can be solved, uh, how hard they are, uh, how suitable are they are for contest, and so on. So we discuss it inside the team, and there we try. All so at some point we understood that well, we don't have uh, this simple problem for the qualification, and we then found uh, this particular problem. Yeah, and. Uh... So you can you can solve it with with a formula. So you have to carefully analyze like various edge cases. But um, the limit, if it exists, it is a solution to this quadratic equation. Uh, it's it's an is the intersection one of the intersections of the of the line y equals x and the parabola. And uh, one of these intersections is always zero. Uh, so that's always a possible limit, not necessarily the limit. And uh, 
Again, depending on the values of the coefficients, there may be another intersection points, and then you have to draw that. That's that's how I did it. I just drew various uh, cases and uh, what the limit is uh, in in each of them. But I also heard from uh, from my friends that uh, they would just run the iteration uh, yeah. for for like million uh, iterations uh, would run this process and and see whether there is a limit yeah so that was one of our what it also tried to achieve that it can be solved uh, with a iterative process at least in some cases when it converge nicely but not in all, every one of them so I, I guess like for this so there is bif bifurcation process and in some for most of the cases it converge fast enough so that you can run iterative process and get a pretty nice value, but for some uh, initial values, it just you just you know cycle a lot hmm. until until it converges. So there you have to use the formula. Yeah. Okay. So just for statistics, statistics, I went for iterations because well, I I guess it should be solvable by quadratic equations or something like that, but. I was a bit lazy then, and I just ran the iterations. But with iterations, you have a problem that you have to determine if there is actually a limit, because like if you just run the iterations, then like you have you have to have some condition about the limit, right? But if if you just run the iterations like for ten million times and just output what you have, then I think you actually pass like forty-five out of fifty test cases, which is good enough. Like you get almost all points for the problem. Uh, but then, uh, I think that I actually like considered a couple of cases by hand or something like that and saw that I could get the remaining cases accepted as well. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool to hear from the, from the winner that, uh, he used the simple iteration method. So oh, I, nice. I, I guess that there's no shame in it. Uh, yeah, of course. Like you're welcome to use whatever, whatever method you have in mind, right? Um, sure. Uh, so the, the second problem of the qualification round, uh, was called sequencing errors and the author is Alexei and the tests were by Dmitry Yakutov. And, um, in this problem, you have a circular genome of a certain length. You're not actually given a, a genome, just assume you have a circular genome and you try to sequence it so you have a certain number of reads and the reads all have a certain length and uh, there is a known probability of making a base calling error at each position in in each read and uh, you have to calculate the expected uh, expected number of positions with incorrect base calls. So you're not given any sequences in this problem. It's not that like you're given the actual genome or the reads. Uh, you have to, in your mind at least, you have to simulate uh, an infinite number of sequencing runs where you s uh, sequence a circular genome and then... Uh, the base calling is done by consensus. So you sort of assume that all the reads are perfectly aligned. And then you calculate, you know, at each position you take the 
most frequent nucleotide, or when there's a tie, then you pick randomly among those nucleotides. And given this process, the the question is to calculate the expected number of errors. And uh, I like this problem because a little bit of mathematics here goes a long way. So, uh, for, for example, the, the first thought that I had when I read the uh, the problem statement was that it's it's really complicated because the error rate at each position depends on the sequencing depth at that point. So basically how many reads cover that position. The more reads you have, the less likely you have an error. And uh, of course, the, the depth uh, is correlated between the neighboring positions. So if at a certain position you have a very high depth coverage, then at the neighboring position, you also have a high depth coverage. So you have this correlation structure and it's really not clear how to analyze that. But then if you, if you think carefully, right, what you're asked is the expectation and expectation is linear. So you don't care about all these correlations and uh, you're just interested in, so you can consider a site, one site in isolation and calculate the probability of an error just for that site, and then multiply that by the genome length. Um, so, so that at least simplifies the problem. I think it was the important step. Uh, probably it was necessary to make the step. I'm not sure if you can solve it without it. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, so again, on the develop problem, so one people, some people develop problems and some people develop tests and solutions. So being uh, also the problem, I don't know, like, I don't have a particular practical solution for it. But the idea here was that indeed, so there are actually two kind of tests, like actually four kind of tests, but for in each uh, type of the problem, the first, first couple of tests can be done, can be solved by, again, by simulation. So it's uh, the relative error is not uh, required. Relative error is not that high. So that's our idea was that people can just simulate the results, simulate the sequencing. But then for the most of the test cases where you have where you have to have relative error of ten to the minus six, yeah, there you have to use this uh, linearity of, of of the expectation, and then you can have to uh, practically get the, the, the probability of the error. And actually, I also like this problem a lot because it, so I came up with it with our students. So uh, we discussed with our bioinformatics students, we discussed different sequencing techno technologies. So like uh, uh, Illumina sequencing, Nanopore, like, uh, Sanger and so on. So they obviously has different have different uh, error rates and different lengths of the reads. So and there and the different prices per nucleotide. So there was some question. There was a question from our students. So what would be the best uh, sequencing machine to use, like in any particular case? So how can you compare between them, given having the, some budget or some library depths and so on? So. And because the answer is not the trivial, that, that's how basically I came up with this problem. 
So it's it's nice that it's both appears from very practical results from very practical uh, questions like which sequencing machine you have to use in each with a particular budget and particular genome and particular library depth and so on. But it also involves pretty nice probability theory that you have to use uh, to solve it. I, I guess it's good to know that this problem is indeed uh, pretty. I don't know, like real life connected. Uh, but well, this the solution is. I think I can go through the solution a bit. Please do. So uh, this is well, this is kind of a combinatorics problem. In fact, like for the probability part a bit of it. So basically, for each position, like you said, we have to calculate the probability that uh, we have an error in this position. And uh, basically, uh, what we can do is, uh, like, since we have, in, at least in the hard case, we have uh, three types of errors. So each character can be replaced by one of the other three with equal probability. We can iterate over the number of mistakes of the first, second, and third type. And if we know these numbers, then we can calculate the probability that these mistakes do happen. This is some kind of basic combinatorics, I'd say. So it's usually studied, I guess, in the university in the probability course. Um, and then, so you, you just uh, sum up the probabilities that correspond to actual mistakes of the m- majority choice. So that we, uh, we just, for, for each case, we find the probability and then we sum up the probabilities of cases which we are interested in. Basically. Right. So, 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 given a certain coverage of of the position that we're considering, so we're considering a single locus, and uh, we iterate over possible values of the coverage. So, how many reads can cover this site? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's the first thing to do. Right. And out out of that number, uh, you iterate over all possible partitions. So, how many of these are A's or, or C's or T's or, or G's? And for each combination of the four numbers, you can calculate what the eventual base call uh, is going to be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but but the problem is that the the number of combinations it gets gets pretty pretty large, right? So you have to optimize it. So that it runs oh, in a reasonable yeah, time. Yeah, the idea is that uh, you don't have to uh, try all combinations. Like uh, if you have uh, one read which reads A and the other one reads C and uh, the other case is the first read reads C and the second one is A, you don't have to consider these cases separately. But instead, right, you, you consider just just the partition Yeah, of, but of if, this if you have the partition, then uh, if you know the partition, then you can actually quickly calculate the number of ways that you can get this partition or more it should be more correct to say the probability of this partition so this one is just calculated with a formula right so but if, did, if, did if, you iterate over all possible partitions yeah i did actually okay it's not it's not, it's not small yeah uh, the cases um i think the cases were quite small yeah i think the largest case had uh, 150 reads so we have 150 to the fourth power. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, so I I made a, an optimization. I don't know, maybe it was a premature optimization. Uh, I don't think I tried this straightforward 
uh, iteration. One one reason is that um, I don't know. Maybe this is a bad strategy, but I usually don't um, don't look at the at the specific tests. So I just assume that they're they're gonna be huge. So I try to implement like a solution in such a way that I can just run it on all all the cases and collect all the points and and just. You know, as, as as opposed to relying on the specific values in in the test or specific test sizes. So one one optimization I came up with is that um. So let let's say you uh you iterate over all possible values of um, how many A's you got at at this site, right? So let's say you have those hundred fifty reads covering this site, and you iterate over. Uh, you know, there can be zero A's, one A, two A's, three A's, etc., up up to 150 A's. Uh, but most of these are very unlikely, uh, just because of the of the probability. So um, at each step, I actually calculate uh, the the quantiles because this. Um, so, so the joint distribution is multinomial, is known as a multinomial distribution, where you have a fixed, uh, fixed number of, um, let's say, nucleotides, and you partition them into four classes, into A's and C's and T's and G's. This is a multinomial distribution. Um, but um, you can also iterate one by one. So first, you iterate over, over all the A's, and all these marginal and conditional distributions of the multinomial distribution they are binomial uh, so this is a simple a simple binomial distribution like if you toss a coin n times how many successes do you have out of n and uh, you can calculate the quantiles of the binomial distribution so you say what are the numbers what what is the range of values that have let's say 99% probability and you can, uh, because you have a certain certain precision, right? You you can just uh, not consider all the values outside of this range because they will will be very improbable, and then they will be multiplied by other improbable values. Uh, so that decays very quickly. And so instead of the whole range, you at each step you consider just the most probable ones. So at at the second. Um, at the second step, when you iterate the C's, again, you know how many uh, remaining reads could be assigned theoretically to the C. Uh, and that's, again, the sort of conditional distribution, which is binomial. So, again, you calculate the quantiles of the binomial distribution. And uh, at each step, it becomes this range becomes even smaller and, and smaller. So that's uh, uh, that, that, that should be pretty efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually considered this when we developed this problem, but then we decided to limit our uh, test cases, like size of the tests, to a small numbers where this optimization are not that required, at least. But if you look, for example, for the real data with the, gen with the large genomes and uh, high coverage, so there you actually you indeed have to use uh, optimizations like this by uh, cutting the tails of the distributions when they become too small. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I analyzed the data that we had. So basically, I knew that we don't have too many 
reads, but your approach is definitely good and it allows to solve the problem for larger, much larger whales. Okay. I think that that's, that's very good, of course, but well, this was a qualification round. So I guess it was simplified a bit. No, absolutely. And, uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that experienced at, at, at the contest. I definitely got burned at the first contest, the first bioinformatics contest, which was, was, um, two years ago where, um, I would just implement a solution to a problem, not necessarily, you know, giving it a, a lot of thought and the, the tests were huge and it would work for a very long time. So, um, so, uh, and and when I saw this problem, I I knew that there will be like huge, especially since I was imagining like realistic, you know, uh, genome length and realistic. Well, the genome length doesn't matter in this problem, but realistic sort of coverage. Um, and so I I immediately jumped in into the optimization mode, and and I I was also curious like when when you are solving a problem. Do you just look at the text file or do you like so, sometimes I would write, uh, in, in my program, I would like create a special mode that would print the statistics. Do, do you do that or do you just, uh, look at, at the raw text file to, to understand what the, what the size of the test is? If I have the text files, uh, I definitely start, uh, by looking at them and, uh, in most cases, you know the size of the input, right? Just the size of the file. Uh, sometimes you need some advanced statistics. Uh, if I feel like I need some of them, I definitely build it. But in most cases, it, it is not needed. Like it depends on the problem, I guess. But so if there is some non-trivial distribution of, mm, say, nucleotides, then you definitely want to know that, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah. So if you need that, then you, you have to calculate it. If you don't need it, then I just don't waste my time. Uh, so, so for example, in, in, in this problem, before you, so did you first implement this simpler solution and it just worked? Or did you first ensure that it will, it will work by like looking at the, at the tests? Uh, yeah, sure. I looked at the cases first. So I just knew that my solution will work. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the third problem of the qualification round uh, was called Transposable Elements. Uh, the author is Ryan Chiki, and the tests are by Maria Atamanova. And uh, in this problem, you are given a genome, this time an actual genome, a, a sequence, and uh, you have to find a string that appears in the genome at least n times without overlaps and uh, each occurrence uh, has has to have no more than a certain number of errors so basically you have to find a repeating motif in a genome um, where its occurrences are judged up to a certain number of um, errors where errors can also be insertions and deletions yeah so it's an interesting problem, also very well motivated biologically, like it's an actual biological problem. And uh, what are your thoughts? Well, let me first thank uh, Ryan for submitting this problem. So Ryan is a, 
uh, participant now participates now cost contest since the beginning. Uh, so he submitted this problem, which we are very thankful for. Uh, sadly, we have to use this problem in the qualification round, as Ryan said that he would like to participate in the finals, where he uh, went pretty well. So this problem was uh, suggested by Ryan, and it also that's why it has well pretty nice biological background and. Actually, like I don't know how to solve it b best, so that's probably how to solve it is the question for you, Roman. I guess I believe you solved it, and as all as the older problems or Gennady. Yeah, I guess I can start with my approach. Actually, unfortunately, I didn't have enough time during the qualification round to solve this problem, so I just went for the first two since that would announce full qualification. But then I. Uh, tried to solve it a bit after the final, just out of curiosity. And uh, yeah, I think I solved nine test cases out of ten. So, well, yeah, basically uh, what I did was uh, I supposed that our string, the one which we want to uh, find, uh, can actually be a substring of the initial genome. Um, for sure, it it is not always the case. So basically, then that's why I solved nine cases out of ten. But in most cases, it is true because, like, uh, well, empirically, it it seems to be almost correct. But okay, like sometimes you have uh, the the actual string which you want to find is not present as a substring, but uh, one change applied to it is present at one position, and one change applied to it is present at another position, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, but if we make the proposition I I did, uh, we just can loop over this substring, and then we want to just find its occurrences in the initial string. So we just go through positions, and then we calculate the distance, like the Levenstein Levenstein distance, mm -hmm. with uh, a simple dynamic programming. Since the strings were short, it was fast enough. Yeah, so basically that's how I did. But maybe you can tell more. I think that actually in the comments I saw that some people were using uh, some uh, bioinformatics uh, software. But yeah, so what did you do? Okay, and and so did did you did you align uh, ev everything against everything or oh so you iterated through the genome right? So you just took the fixed length part of the genome and uh, and then searched for it in other places yeah that's true uh, and uh, when i found the answer i just broke it uh, it was a bit slow for the larger cases but with some optimizations it can be fast enough so we can wait a bit yeah so uh, so my solution was i started by aligning just everything against everything <laughs> And it worked for smaller, uh, smaller problems. For bigger problems, I made an optimization which went something like this. So I calculated the the Kamer statistics. So I, I broke the genome into substrings of the fixed length. I think I, I used like five MERS maybe. And then you can calculate the um, the density of of the Kamer. So basically. At each position, you take the kamer that starts at that position and calculate how many times it occurs elsewhere in the genome. 
And so if you have a long stretch of k-mers, each of them occurs um, the number of times close to the number of occurrences, then uh, that's a likely uh, position. So that was just the, uh, an optimization to limit the number of uh, strings that I have to compare to all other strings, because that's a quadratic algorithm. Compare every, everything against everything, and each comparison is, is also uh, quadratic. And um, then I have um, essentially a, a graph, right? And I can uh, find uh, clicks in, in this graph, so I can find subgraphs where everything is connected to everything, where the edges correspond to the Levenstein distance above a certain threshold. So basically, if you're allowed to have the number of differences d, then you know that the distance between any two occurrences has to be under 2d, just by the triangle inequality. And, uh, and so I construct this graph where I threshold the Levenstein distance by 2d, so two strings are connected if their Levenstein distance is under 2D. Then I find clicks in this graph, uh, which are can uh, and clicks of the size above uh, our number of occurrences. And um, then I try to find the, <laughs> the 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 sort of center of of this click. And uh, this was the first time, I think, in my life when I applied a genetic algorithm. <laughs> because generally, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of genetic algorithms. Okay. But, but this is a perfect case because we're actually talking about genetics. <laughs> so this is a, this is a good, um, uh, this is a good use case. And uh, essentially, what I, what I did was, um, I don't remember all the specifics of what I implemented, but once something like this, I think I, I start with maybe one one of the strings, and then at each uh, at each step I uh, compare it with another string, and uh, if they if they have a big distance, if they have a big difference over over d, so it's certainly under two d, but it could be over d, and if it's between d and two d, then I sort of randomly recombine them. So I I go through this alignment script. Right, so if you align to um, to strings, you have a uh, a sequence of letters like uh, match or mismatch or insert or delete, and uh, then you can go through the script and randomly apply these changes. So you get a mix of these two strings. Right, you have something between the, the first string and the second string, and uh, I, I just repeat this uh, many times until until I get a solution. So I. I take the the current candidate. Find I don't remember if I took sort of the farthest or one one of the one of the far ones, but I basically recombine the current candidate with a an, an occurrence that is far away from it. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think also that when you have the strings and to want to find the center, I believe you can use uh, like multiple alignment software that is. Like frequent bioinformatics, and there are some online tools that you can try to use. So that probably could solve this, this last step for you. I, I consider that, uh, and I try, but I think uh, even like using an existing algorithm, 
it could be actually more work. So I considered using Clustel, which is one, one of the multiple alignment um, algorithms, uh, one of the popular ones. But then you have first you have to format the input in in a way that this algorithm takes, then parse its output. Then you have to deal with like various limitations and assumptions of this algorithm. So, for example, Clustel is is uh, motivated biologically, right? So it assumes a certain a certain evolutionary model of the, for example, DNA or, or amino acids. So I, I thought that that would be uh, too too much work to integrate, but I I, I certainly read um, read up on like various multiple alignment algorithms, and uh, I don't remember whether I actually used any of of the ideas, but certainly maybe like took some inspiration from that. I guess my main takeaway was that there's no like an, an obvious great multiple alignment algorithm. So you, you have to you have to compose something of your own. For, for example, for pairwise alignment, there are well-known algorithms, uh, and I just wanted to make sure that I'm not missing one great multiple alignment algorithm. Yeah, maybe that's a good reason to make some some, some software doing that. But multiple alignment is an empty hard problem. Yeah, that, that's a problem. <laughs> but when you when you have uh, finding clicks as a part of your solution, which which is also empty hard, so probably one empty hard plus another empty hard, <laughs> two empty hard. Minus by minus is not plus. No? <laughs> All right, and uh, so that was the qualification round, and now we are approaching the final round, uh, which lasted twenty four hours. Uh, took place on the twenty third of February, twenty third to twenty fourth of February, and the first problem. I really hope. You guys will explain it to me because I I try to read and and understand the problem statement during the round itself, and I failed <laughs> to to understand it. And then while preparing for this podcast, I I made a second attempt and I failed again. So I still don't don't know what what is asked in that problem, but it has to do with cancer and chromosome rearrangements, and. Um, uh, the author is uh, Sergei Aganezov, and the tests are by Ilyas Zban or Zban. 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 Yeah. So first, we're given some background from the cancer biology, which I guess we'll we'll skip. Um, I, I think a lot of people um, who who listen to this podcast will be familiar with the basics of of cancer. But uh, what is the what is the actual problem about? So let me try to explain at least how I understand the, the problem and why we ha- why it's kind of complex in the statement. So the problem is about chromosome re- rearrangements. Well, well, while in particular here it's about cancer re- rearrangements, but in general this framework is used for all kind of chromosome re- re- rearrangements. So there we have to describe the rearrangement. Uh, people use a so-called breakpoint graph. There, first you have to describe actual sequence of DNA, and there you have, in in now in this case in this problem, it described as a two vertices connected by a, an edge, which is called segment edge. So this tightly corresponds to a particular genome sequence, and there, uh, when 
the chromosome gets rearranged, these parts of the genome, like genome sequence, are getting connected in different ways. And that is represented by adjacency edges that shows which ends of the segments connected to which other ends of the segments. And in this case, uh, these rearrangements that are considered are, they are not just uh, shuffling of the genome, but also can include uh, multiplication, like uh, amplification of the parts. So that's why we have a lot of the edge, a lot of the adjacent edges. So for one one particular one particular genome segment can be connected to multiple genome segments. And when you have this re rearrangement happen in real life, for for example in cancer, what you can measure by sequencing is actually what segments are connected to what segments. So when you have uh, so normally you have a linear like linear DNA in multiple chromosomes, and when you have normal genome, you sequence it, you align it to the reference, and everything aligns perfectly. But when you have these re rearrangements happening, uh, your genome, your DNA reads will be aligned to like one particular read will, can be aligned to different parts parts of the genome. So that's uh, that's where these adjacent edges are coming from. And the question of the problem was basically after having sequence after having the genome sequenced, like cancer genome sequenced, you have this data, it's it but which was kind of pre-processed for you for the participants. So so basically after this pre-processing and what was the input for the problem is which genome segments are connected to which other genome segments. And the question that we asked was to find so as we know uh, that after this all this rearrangement, it's still a number of linear or maybe circular chromosomes. So the question was, uh, though there was two types of questions in this problem, one of them was to actually um, describe any of the possible rearrangements that is consistent with the data, with the input data. And the second question, like more hard, was find the minimal number of uh, chromosomes in the decomposition. The part that we didn't ask was to find the maximum, maximize the number of chromosomes in decomposition, which is also an interesting problem, but it's harder. But in general, yeah, that was to find what would be the simplest uh, genome when simplest is the number of chromosomes that is consistent with the data, with the input data. And so in this graph, the vertices correspond to the ends of the original segments? The vertices correspond to the ends of the genome segments. Like basically each, each position in the genome can be described as a vertex or actually... But not each because you have like a whole segment, right? It corresponds just to two vertices. Yeah, but here we considered only the like nucleotides that are adjacent to the actual breakpoint in the chromosome. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's limited here. But actually you can, uh, in the like infinite case, uh, and each, each, each nucleotide would be a vertex and they will be connected if they have, if there is a, 
the linear segment, linear genome segment that has both these nucleotides. And so there are two types of edges. So there's a segment edge and adjacency edge. So what are those? Yeah, so basically the segment edge is a corresponds to a genome sequence. So on it you can write some letters of like ATGC and so on. And adjacency edge uh, basically describe so it's you can consider it as like a puzzle where each which uh, segment edge corresponds to a piece of a puzzle mm-hmm. and the adjacency edge describes which of the puzzle pieces can be connected with each with each other puzzle pieces got it so so the segment edge connects the left end of the segment with the right end of the segment and the adjacency edge connects the right end of the segment with the left end of the next segment. Yeah. Right. And so once you read this problem statement and understand it and do some thinking, can you reduce this to like a simple problem on the graphs? Yeah. Is this like a standard problem? I think it's not standard. I think that I haven't met such a problem in programming competitions. So you can't say it's standard, I think. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's some kind of graph problem. So basically, if we just talk in terms of graphs, we have a, an undirected graph with, uh, yeah, vertices, edges. Each edge connects to vertices and the edges are of two types. The first type and the second type. But let me call them that way. And we want to decompose this graph into a collection of paths and cycles. And we want uh, cycles to consist of edges of the first and second type alternately. So that we have first, second, first, second. So every cycle must have an even number of edges. And we want paths to consist of alternate edges as well. First, second, first, second. And we want paths to start with the first and, st- and end with the first. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's what, that, that's what we want to do. I guess I, sh- I should just talk about the solution. Uh, it, it is not too hard, I think. So the idea is, uh, yeah, the first idea is that each vertex, mm, the number of edges of the first type adjacent, yeah, incident to a vertex is at least the number of edges of the second type incident to that vertex. Because uh, for each cycle, each vertex in the cycle have has one edge of the first type and one edge of the second type instantly. And uh, on, a, on, on a path, each inner vertex has one edge of the first type and one edge of the second type incident to it. And the ends of the path have just one edge of the first type, but no edge of the second type. So each, each vertex has number of edges of the first type is not less than the number of edges of the second type, right? So if this condition is not satisfied, for some vertex, then we know that there's no answer. There's actually a case in the problem, so we have to output yes or no. So the case of no is when some vertex has too many edges of the second type instantly. Okay, so the second step is uh, for each vertex, if, we, if it has too many incident edges of the first type, okay, let's just fix it. Uh, let's collect all vertexes, all vertices, uh, along with multiplicity. So suppose some vertex has uh, two extra edges of the first type, some, let's say, vertex A. Let's say vertex B has one extra edge of the first type, and let's say vertex C has also one edge, extra edge of the first type. 
then what we will do is we will create new fake edges of the second type. We will, in this example, we'll connect A to B with an edge of the second type and A to C. So if we do that, now every vertex has the same number of edges of the first and second type instantly. Okay, and we can always do that. This kind of simplifies the problem. So if we know that, okay, so now, now let's proceed to this, to the case when every vertex has a equal number of edges of the first and second type incident to it. But, uh, this works if there are just two vertices or if there's any even number, because then, then you have to consider like how to pair them, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Basically, it doesn't matter how you pair them. What matters is that. Yeah, you can have any number of such vertices, in fact. So, and you can just connect them in any way. It doesn't matter. Right. So, so you'll, you'll create new cycles, but they will, uh, consist of some number of, like, linear, linear segments or linear paths. Yeah. Right? So you, well, you're, you're, you're yeah, just yeah. connecting the, these paths randomly. Basically, yeah. And yeah. forming cycles. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, I will connect, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I create new edges and then I decompose the graph into cycles. And then mm -hmm. I just uh, remove the edges which I added. And yep. this way the cycles decomp like break into paths. Uh, some, some of the cycles do not break if they don't, con don't contain any new edges. But in most cases, a cycle con con contains some newly created edges. When we remove them, then we have paths, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and how to create the cycles? What you can do is actually like just start, pick any vertex and just go from it, uh, use an edge of the first type. Then from the next vertex, pick any edge of the second type and so on. And so you just alternate the edges. And then, uh, when you enter a vertex, so you mark the edge as used. When you, when you use an edge, okay? When you, you, when you move along an edge, you mark it as used. And so you enter vertex and you exit it using an edge of another type. And so this going, since every vertex has equal number of edges of the first and second type incident, you're guaranteed that when you enter a vertex, you will be able to move out of it. So you just go from some vertex until you run into a vertex which you visited before. And if you do that, then you have a cycle. You just remove the cycle and continue. So this way you can get a cycle decomposition of the graph. Yeah. So, so that's, that's like the, the standard sort of Eulerian cycle. Actually, like, uh, I'm not sure. I was trying to do something with Eulerian cycle, but it's a bit hard to alternate the edges in the Eulerian cycle because like you can't guarantee that. I was actually mm -hmm. struggling with this problem quite a bit. I spent quite a lot of time on it. So, but yeah, what, what, what I eventually did was just build cycles of like, just build some cycles, not necessarily Eulerian ones. And then uh, when I had several cycles, which had a common vertex, I connected them into one cycle. So that <coughs> if you have a vertex and two cycles passing through it, you can connect them into one cycle, mm -hmm. right? And so I did right. that until I have the minimal number of cycles. So the hard part is just minimizing, but decomposing into some kind of decomposition, uh, is it straightforward? Is it just what, what you described? 
Uh, I think so. I think that it actually it is similar to Elrian Pass, Elrian Cycle, but uh, here we have two types of edges, right? So that, that's what makes mm -hmm. the problem different from the usual, the standard one, right? If you just just had one type of edges, then you just find the cycle which passes through all of them, and you're done. But in this problem, you have to alternate the edges. Um, maybe you can just modify the standard algorithm to account for that. All right, so the second problem of the final round is called epigenomic marks. Uh, the author is German Dimidov, and the tests are by Artyom Vasilyev. And uh, I really, really like this problem. It is quite realistic, right? It is also very, very simple to understand. So you are given uh, several tracks of epigenomic marks, which are basically bits. So a mark is either present or not. And a mark could be, um, I guess, something like DNA methylation or some histone. Well, it, do it doesn't ideally map to a biological concept because the histone modification is obviously a property of, of the histone. But you, you could superimpose something like a histone modification track on top of the DNA track. And so you get several tracks of this epigenetic marks. And you have to sort of cluster them into a smaller or a small number of um, different states. Uh, so the states could be, for example, open chromatin, closed chromatin, or, or something like that. You, you don't have to name them. You have to simply classify, simply assign to each locus in your genome to one of the states. And uh, the score is just the uh, entropy, the total entropy. So given the first state, so you consider all the sites that were assigned to the first state, and you calculate the entropy of this conditional distribution. So based, uh, so conditional on the state, we can observe a certain distribution in the first track, a certain distribution in the second track. So, so you compute this total entropy and you have to minimize this total entropy. And so the the problem is relatively easy to understand, but uh, I found it pretty hard to, to solve. So uh, what do you guys think? Well, first of all, it's actually a detailed mistake. It was pretty easy to solve. Well, not completely, but to a pretty good degree. So basically, uh, the trivial solution of uh, putting all the zeros has a very gets a very high score because uh, so assigning everything to a single state yeah as because in the initial states uh, the initial marks are not uh, like uniform so are not uh, 50 50 distributed usually there are a smaller number of ones and then number of zeros so basically set, uh, just Assigning everything to the single state gets you a pretty nice score. Huh. So, the, so the entropies they just add up, right? So, do you sort of minimize the total entropy by just considering not like ten distributions, but just one distribution? Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's just that uh, you have an entropy which is accumulated over all states, and uh, 
if you assign it randomly to k states, then you have approximately k times what you get if you just assign everything to one state. Right. That, that, that's interesting because intuitively you want you actually want a larger number of states because then you can sort of more precisely match them to the to the profiles. I think that this issue could be easily fixed if the baseline score was not generated by, by a random choice, but but generated by assigning everything to one state. So you have actually to improve that. So, Jana, what was your solution? Did you just put all the zeros? In fact, uh, this problem had four test cases. The first one was pretty small. The second one was a bit larger. And this, the third and first one were the biggest ones. And uh, it was a bit interesting that the bigger cases were simpler to solve than the smaller ones. Because for bigger, bigger cases, you had bigger number of states. And then just setting all zeros gave you even more score. So it was actually quite hard to improve over the baseline, like this kind of baseline solution for the larger cases. And so I didn't do exactly that. What I did was uh, some kind of, uh, oh, well, I, I have, you can call it local optimizations. So I'm not sure how to call it. So it's a bit similar. To, like you, you can, what you can do, for example, is uh, simulated annealing. Uh, or you can probably do genetic algorithm as well. So what I did was just, you have a string of length L, which consists of numbers from zero to K minus one. And then you can apply some kind of mutations and maybe recombinations and recalculate the entropy. And if it improves, then you can keep the state. If it doesn't improve, then you can roll back and so on. And that, that's what I did. You can do something more difficult, more involved. And uh, yeah, it, it was a bit sad that the scoring was not very good. So it didn't like motivate you to investigate more time to this problem because just simple searches gave you quite good score. But anyway, I think that I had the close to best scores on the first and second case. So yeah, but it gave me like four points, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I think I considered uh, some 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 variation of local search, like simulated annealing, but I didn't really get around to to implementing it. I think one of the first things I tried is just some kind of naive clustering. The, this was the only problem. So normally I uh, I use Haskell to to solve these problems, but this was the only problem where I didn't even bother with the Haskell solution. I just uh, I spun up R and I read the tests into R and I, I just played with them in R. And and the first thing I tried is just simple clustering. It didn't work. Like, I, I was a bit surprised, to be honest, that it, it didn't work that well because intuitively that, that's what you want to do, right? You want to cluster these, uh, these states together. And... Uh, my second attempt, which which worked relatively well for smaller cases, it didn't work at all for for larger cases. But for smaller cases, what you could do is just to to go through uh, the the loci in order, just to consider them one by one, and uh, 
for each locus, you, you you look at the existing distributions and you just choose one, you know, the the state one of those k states where where to assign this locus to minimize the the current entropy, and then if if you have enough time, you can do several iterations. Uh, and I think this worked for like smaller test cases, but for larger ones, I couldn't even complete a single iteration. And it's also interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking how to apply some not discrete optimization, but somehow apply the like proper optimization because you, you're optimizing the entropy, right? It's, it's a nice smooth function and uh, how to convert the gradient of the entropy into the into the original assignment but i didn't come up with anything but it, it it seems that this problem should have a proper solution first of all this problem is so simple to formulate that it's hard to it's hard to believe that it hasn't been studied before there has to be some kind of canonical algorithm right well for this problem well, no, so similar problem there is a tool tool called uh, ROMHMM, which is based on hidden Markov models. So that, so our idea was that, uh, so that the, this problem can be solved with this hidden Markov models algorithms, where you have to train your model and then the state of this model will be the, the state in the, in the output. But what would be the, the transitions between the states? So idea was to mark each uh, genome position with a state, and from each state you can get to any other state. So the, all the, tra the transition probabilities are probably maybe uniform, but so like it's uh, connected pairwise. But what you have to find is that what how do you uh, how do you assign states to each of the position? And what the probabilities of, so how this actually the state looks like. So what the probability of getting each new, each epigenomic mark is at each, each state. So that's how, so basically for this, uh, this problem can be solved in the, in terms of this hidden mark of models where you have, where you develop model. So basically for each state is just a distribution of the, is the probability distribution of getting each of the marks. Yeah, I, I don't know. The hidden Markov model doesn't seem like a great tool here exactly because there is no obvious interpretation to transition between the states, right? So Yeah, but it's so but it's not about transition, it's about states. And basically yeah, transitions are not that important here. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. And that, that's why uh, it's, it's probably like the, the hidden Markov model is the wrong model here. Exactly. Because the transitions between the hidden states is an important feature of, of an HMM. And if you're not using that, maybe that's just the wrong abstraction. I'm not saying the algorithm is is not good, but maybe that's just the wrong way to, to express it. Yeah, but we never know. <laughs> and for the people who listen to this podcast so i guess we'll try to make this problem into the next qualification round <laughs> with a proper scoring so this is do your homework uh, yeah like kind of a spoiler <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i'm surprised 
that there is no so i would expect there to be when when i said like a canonical algorithm like not based basically an hmm or something like that is just a heuristic or like a more well like for hmm problem, but... for hmm there is a i guess it's called a viterbi algorithm yeah. so there is a, so there is a one particular algorithm that optimizes it so that's kind of well defined solution while the model can be while the model can be like not exactly the one that it should be used, but for this particular model, there is an exact solution. Yeah, the the, the Viterbi algorithm works for for an HMM, but then the mapping from this problem to HMM is sort of imperfect. But I, I was talking about like the yeah. the precise, you know, the exact solution to 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 this problem because how, indeed how you how you, how do you minimize the the entropy with a limited number of states like the problem just seems so simple that someone had to someone had to consider it. maybe we should ask german uh, do, do you know did he tell you how he came up with this or like... Like, so actually it's the other way around so when we discussed this this, this problem with him so his idea was that the chrome hmm is slow for a big number of marks and big genomes so how so because this, this problem is very biological relevant, so it's we are indeed using chip sequencing data or methylation sequencing data. You can get these marks and get these genome tracks, and then annotation with the states is kind of time-consuming process, a computationally time-consuming process. Mm-hmm. And so his take was to get this problem solved by someone, <laughs> and so to get the better algorithm for this. But I guess we'll have to wait another year for this to happen. <laughs> yeah, in in that case, it's more appropriate for the qualification round when you have an, the whole week and not that yeah. many problems to solve. But also, the fact that you try to minimize the entropy is is that the is that the goal in biology as well? Like, it's not obvious to me. Well, it's yeah. it's a very nice scoring function, but uh, I don't know how biologically relevant it is. Yeah, like I said, biology, you don't know exactly what you want to optimize. Yeah. So this is just uh, one particular way to score it. That kind of makes sense, but maybe not the like biological one. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice problem. And the next problem is bacterial communities. And uh, I should say it is by Nikita Alexeyev and Mikhail Raiko. And the tests are by Vitaly Diminuk. And in this problem, you're given some samples from many generations of bacteria. So you have, you start with a single bacterium and uh, its genome it has a fixed length and the, and the genomes of all the subsequent populations are uh, of the same length. So you... At each generation, you subsample from the previous one and you make some uh, point mutations. There are no insertions or deletions, just uh, point changes. And uh, from each, first of all, you're not given all the generations. You're given only a, only some subset of generations. And from each generation, you're also not given the full, you know, all, all the organisms all the genomes from that generation, you're again given some random subset. Uh, and you have to order them uh, by their evolutionary age. So which which generation was earlier and which one was um, later. 
Yeah, so for this problem, the hard part was to find the proper formulation around this uh, general idea of evolution and finding the which samples are closer to which communities closer to which other community. So we had several ideas how that can be formulated as a problem. So maybe the one that we end up with was not the ideal one, but well, that's what we ended up with. And yeah, there we just described a pretty formal, so we gave a pretty formal description of the simulation of the process that we used to, uh, to simulate the evolution. And then, yeah, you have to solve it somehow. And so, so for this problem, I get, so we don't know the solution. Like we don't know how to solve it to hundred percent, like two hundred percent. And I believe actually it can can't be done. Yeah. So and so it's just too, too little information. Yeah. And what I really like about this problem is that Gena doesn't have Gena doesn't have the best score for this problem. Oh. Actually, okay. there is a participant. Oh yeah, I see. Victoria Kabets. Yeah, Victoria Kabets, who solved it be- better for in the last test, and actually it's even better than. It's also better than the solution that we have. Yeah. Oh well, uh, I'm not going to be shy, and actually I got better score after the contest. <laughs> well, anyway. In my opinion, this problem is uh, the most exciting of all the problems of the qualification, the final round at all. So, uh, what I liked is, uh, on once, uh, on one hand, you have a formal, a very formal description of the process, right? So, uh, you know how the data is generated, but on the other hand, uh, it's hard to extract information from the input you get. And I think that you have like you, you, you can actually infer a lot from what you're given, but the hard part is to actually understand how to do that. And uh, I feel like there must be a lot of ways to do that. And my intuition is that a perfect solution is possible for the given cases, at least. Because like, of course, uh, in fact, what you are given is some subset of uh, generations and some subset of genome genomes from each generation so of course if you're given like two generations and one genome from each you can't do much but uh, if you're given some significant part i think that you should it should be possible to do quite well we should clarify what uh, what does it mean to have a perfect solution so one interpretation is that the solution is perfect if you can actually exactly reproduce the original order Right, but the the other interpretation is that there is some kind of probability distribution on all possible orderings, even though it's not efficiently computable, but the perfect solution would find the most probable ordering given the given the data, which if you have little enough data, it may not coincide with the original ordering, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Are you saying that there should be a solution that is always able to reconstruct the no, uh, original ordering, given sort of a reasonable amount of data? Um, I think that 
probably the most probable solution is hard to find. I think that, mm, I guess you can do it, but in a lot of time, right? But, but I think that for really small cases, you can find the most probable solution. But for a bit larger cases, of course, I think that you shouldn't be able to do that. But what I was saying is that I think that in the test data given, the amount of information is not so low. So in fact, okay, what I was actually saying is that I think that you can still do much better than what the competitor did. I, mm -hmm. I feel so, but well, maybe I'm wrong. But so I feel like there are a lot of sources of information. Yeah, sure. So uh, there were two approaches, I think. One of the approaches is to note that the first generation consists of just one genome, and all generations are generated from from the initial genome. So it is reasonable to think that the, the earlier generations consist of more similar genomes. Yeah. Right? So what we can do is uh, for each position in the genome, find the distribution of nucleotides on this position. And uh, for example, or we can find uh, the frequency of the most frequent one on every position and sum it up over all positions. And it will be some kind of measure how similar are the genomes in this generation. Okay. So just for, just for some, just for each position, we just find how mm -hmm. different are the nucleotides in this position. And then we can just sort the generations according to this matrix. And so sort of sort, sort by variance, right? Uh, yeah, kind of. I guess that variance is the correct term for this. Yes. So you can do it by variance. Yes. So just. You just take into account that the earlier generations are more similar. Yeah, uh, I think that this approach gets some score, but it's not good. It's not too good. But I think that I think that that's what most competitors did. From the scores, when I tried some kind of approach like this, I got similar scores to what most people had. Yeah, I did something similar. So my first approach was to calculate the consensus sequence. So to find, to, to put together all the genomes from all the generations and at each position to find the most frequent nucleotide. And this gives you the consensus sequence. And then you just order the generations by how far they are from this consensus sequence. And, and so that, that was like literally the first thing I came up with. And then I, was coming up with this more sophisticated, like, like, as you say, sort by variance. It was very frustrating that they weren't working better than my first approach. So when I tried to sort by variance, or I also tried to sort by some combination of variance and the distance from the consensus, it was actually doing worse than just the simple distance to the consensus. And I, and I couldn't improve on it. Okay. I think didn't have any, any other ideas. Yeah, sure. Let me talk about the second approach I had. So this one was actually the better one. It's close to what I eventually did. So the idea is that our solution, which just calculates variance, doesn't compare generations to each other. But uh, so, yeah, it, it just calculates some statistics for each generation. It's not good enough. But what we can do is, for example, like the simplest way is take two generations and find the number of common genomes in these generations. And this will be a kind of a matrix how close these generations are. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what we can do is uh, something like this. We start with some generation, like 
As the first generation in the output, we can take the one with the least variance, but then each next generation is picked as follows. We can pick the generation which is as close to, to those which are already output as possible. Hmm. So basically, uh, for example, for, for each pair of generations, we calculate distance between them or probably not. Not distance should be called like similarity, the number of common genomes. And then, uh, when we have some prefix of the output. Oh, okay. So, so you're, you're not looking at the nucleotide wise yeah. distance. But... Yeah. 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 Basically you, you just find the equal genomes, but right. that's what I did. Yes. You, you just, you just calculate equal genomes. Okay. And then you just find Given the prefix of the sequence, you want to find the next element, and this one will be the one which has the most common genomes with the prefix. And you just put it there, and then find the next one, and so on. And uh, yeah, th this approach doesn't account for nucle nucleotides at all. It just compares genomes, and they should be exactly equal. And it's already good enough to score a lot of points, but of course, instead of comparing them strictly, you can compare, like, if the genomes are similar, then it's also like, it's not one point, for example, but 0 0.9 or something like that. And uh, yeah, basically, like I, I, what I did was strict comparison. But again, I think that you can do better here. So yeah, basically the idea is to just, you just, if you have enough generations from the whole set, then you just compare generations between each other. Right. And uh, Alexei, you, of course, you didn't have to solve this <laughs> problem because you... <laughs> You already had the the inside knowledge of the perfect solution, but uh, what was the the best thing you came up with? Well, so our like jury solutions was generated by Vitaly Dimenyuk, and I guess it, it sounds very similar to what Gennady has. So it's also actually the sorting by first like variants and like in general how they far from the. Uh, from the origin is indeed uh, the first solution that makes like, a simple solution to solve this, to uh, to use for this problem, and it indeed gets you kind of nice points. Yeah, but in general you you have to compare generation generation pairwise and then somehow select the sequence in which uh, you want to trace this. And this greedy approach can be used. Like similar to what Gennady has, but I believe Vitaly also did some, like after the greedy approach, you can use some local optimization, optimization techniques to make it even better, like to slightly switch the order of the, like local order of the generations. But what what is your, what is your sort of scoring function when you do optimization? Yeah, like basically distance nucleotide-wise or yeah, I believe nucleotide-wise distance between the between the sequence between the sequences in the generations yeah, so basically the question is if you can compare two generations which one came earlier then that's, one, that's what you want I actually thought about that well, I didn't have time to implement it but I think that's, that's the next thing I would do, I would try to compare two generations I'm not sure if it can be done efficiently when you do some kind of local search here, you don't actually need some kind of scoring function, right? I mean, if you just can compare two generations, you're fine. Mm. But, well, I, I'm not sure how to do that. 
So when we make the next generation from the previous one, we create some additional copies of genomes, right? So we, we replicate some genomes and then yeah. we remove some random genomes. So the next generation will have some repeated genomes from the previous one. So maybe if you have some genome which appears one time in one genome and two times in the other genome, then the other genome is more likely to come after the first one, right? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Maybe that some kind of along these lines you can do. Also, uh, s somehow in this contest, uh, a lot of times I saw a ghost of the traveling salesman problem. Like, like here you want, you want a linear ordering of everything, right? So that the sort of total path is, is minimized. Yeah. That's what I actually tried to do first. Like I said, I found the similar, similarity function between two generations, which was just a number of common genomes. And then I tried to find the best path in this graph. But it is not good enough because you don't only, not only you want the adjacent generations in the past to be similar, you also want those which are close in the past to be similar as well. Right. Mm. So you want the distances to be like, uh, I mean, it's a bit harder than traveling salesman, I think. So, mm -hmm. uh, that's why I, the first attempt was to find, like, when I had some prefix, I wanted the next generation to be as close as possible to the last one in the past, in the, in the prefix. That's what I tried first, and it didn't do well. But when I found how similar it is to all the generations in the prefix, then it was very good. And actually, I just checked uh, what Vitalis solutions are getting, and the scores are pretty similar to what Gennady has. So we can't really solve it much better. Yeah, anyway, I think that it was a very interesting problem. So I enjoyed it a lot. Gennady, I also wanted to ask you, what language are you using in these competitions? I use C++. Basically, the idea is that in programming competitions, you kind of have to use C++. It's not obligatory. <laughs> and But most competitions, like most participants use C++ or Java. Mm -hmm. The other languages are not widely supported, and the problem is that in most cases they are slower, and the traditional algorithmic and programming competitions, uh, they are revolving around the complexity of algorithms, but you also have the implementation to be efficient enough, and that's why we want to have an efficient language, and uh, yeah, uh, sure, for example, for the last few years, Python is uh, becoming more and more widespread in com programming competitions. But uh, in problems where efficiency is important, you usually don't go with Python. You go with C++ or Java. And yeah, so C++ is kind of the standard choice for the basic programmers. Yeah, it's, it's a good balance between uh, the raw efficiency, but also availability of some like basic algorithms. Uh, so... I assume you, you can use STL, right? Yes, yes, of course. And so, so yeah, it's high level enough, but yeah. it's efficient enough as well. Are, are you allowed to use Boost? Uh, no, Boost is usually not allowed. Right. All right, two problems to go. So problem number four is minimal genome. And uh, that's another great problem in the sense that it's uh, very 
simple and you know very simple to understand very hard to solve the problem is by Vitaly Aksyonov and the tests are also by him so the problem I, I love this it's it's literally two lines of text I'll, I'll just read it verbatim you're given a list of proteins each protein is represented as a sequence of amino acids you have to find as short dna sequence as possible from which all the proteins can be translated so that that's basically it you have to find a dna sequence where like depending where you start in which direction you uh, so you, you translate proteins uh, according to the standard genetic code, and um, you have to generate all the given proteins, right? And uh, I sort of thought about the parallel between this and uh, genome assembly, except when you assemble a genome, on the one hand, you don't have this variability because each amino acid, of course, corresponds to multiple codons, uh, and so there's an extra degree of freedom here. On the other hand, this is more exact because there are no errors. Uh, so this has to match exactly. And I was thinking about applying some genome assembly algorithms like the De Bruyne graph to this problem, but uh, I, I didn't succeed. So what do you guys think? First, first of all, from our side, we didn't know how to solve it. And it was pretty nice that this problem was solved completely to the full score. So this, so Vitaly yeah, till, till the end was kind of curious if people, if it will be solved or not. So the, so it, really, it was really nice that it was solved actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess you didn't didn't have to know how to solve it, right? Yeah, but that's uh, that's our. What is why it's good to be a jury, so you don't have to solve it. Actually, <laughs> that's a problem of participants. Yeah, you just pose a problem and then let participants show themselves. Also, it's another problem where if you if you squint, you can see a traveling salesman problem, right? Because if if you find overlaps between the proteins and then you sort of try to traverse this, uh, except you have to ensure that the overlaps are consistent because different overlaps can assume different codons for, for the same amino acids. Yeah, that's true. But, yeah, okay, so I can tell what I did. Uh, what I did was uh, the core of the algorithm was greedy. So if you can find two proteins which align well, you can just uh, join them into one little string. How do you efficiently find overlaps between between proteins? Do you do you find do you like consider all the overlappings, or do you use seed and extent, or what, what do you do? Uh, sure. So I actually tried all overlappings. Yeah, the first problem you encounter well when solving this problem is that um, every amino acid can be represented in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's quite difficult because you just don't know if it will match or not. What I I did some kind of simplification of this problem. For each amino acid, I just considered all its codons possible. 
I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terms because I'm not much into the biological part, but I guess you will forgive me. So each amino acid is represented as a string of three nucleotides, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we have several representations, but some nucleotides are fixed, are the same in all representations. So if some nucleotide is fixed, then I just use it in this position because I know it is fixed. And if some nucleotide is not fixed, I just replace it with an asterisk mm-hmm. because like, I don't know this nucleotide. It can be, um, even if it can be just one of two, I just replace it with an asterisk for simplicity. Right. Eventually, that's how I translated the strings of amino acids into the strings of nucleotides and uh, some wildcards. And then I just tried all possible intersections, all possible overlappings of two strings. And uh, so if I have some overlapping, I just made sure that in the intersection part, all characters match exactly. So if I have wildcard against the character, it's okay. If I have a wildcard against against the wildcard, it's okay, okay as well, of course. And if I have a character against another character, a different character, then this overlap is false. It's not, not what, what I can use. And then if I had some strings which overlapped enough, I mean, if the length of overlap was at least 10% of their length, for example, I assumed that this cannot be a coincidence and hmm. you can just merge them into one string. So basically that, that, that was it. I was just looking over pairs of strings and try to align them. Interesting. But t- 10% only over the positions where you know both letters, right? You don't consider asterisks. Uh, I, I just said that if I have, I think it was just of 10% of the whole length. Okay. It doesn't matter too much here. And 10% is just like a random number. You can replace it with someone. If you cannot assemble it into one string, then you want a lower number there, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have some false positives, you want a higher number. So you can just do that manually, fix this number. And the interesting part is that actually I solved the long, the, the more difficult cases fully, but I couldn't solve a small case fully. Like of all six test cases, I solved test case six, but I couldn't solve test case five, which was the same, but the length was 200 and not a hundred thousand. And that's a consequence of the way of solving I chose, because when the strings are short, there are a lot of asterisks. It's hard to find the balance between matching and uh, not matching so that you don't have false positives and false negatives. When you have long strings, if you have a very large overlap, then you can be sure that you just have to merge the strings. And in case of short strings, it might be false. So yeah, basically that was my trouble. But it nice. solves the problem pretty well for large strings. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, you, you, the, you got all, almost full score. For, yeah, I got for that. almost full. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. All right. And the final problem is endangered species so this problem is by alexey and um, the idea is that you have you have the species e sferica 
and uh, you have n males and n females, and you have to pair them in such a way that ensures the maximal number of heterozygous loci. So you're given the genotypes of the, the diploid genotypes of each individual, and you have to pair them in such a way that you get the you maximize the number of heterozygous loci. Um, so, Alexei, how did you come up with this? Well, this is kind of continuation of the problem from the second cont contest. Yeah, where the, people, the breeding problem. Yeah, the breeding problem. Cow, cow where, breeding. where you had to breed, uh, like again, cross the cows to breed a better uh, milk producing cows. So, on, basically, from the, so there was ideas of using the similar like, backend or similar model but to from the different perspective so in the so in the second cost contest the problem was so the genotypes wasn't uh, was not known so people have to optimize the milk production based on different other qualities yeah you had to rely on just on the phenotypes yeah but here we had the genotypes, and we want to to conserve these animals and to get it as heterozygous as possible. And there will we tried again multiple to make multiple formulation of the problem. And what was curious, or like what was unexpected for me, that actually, so uh, initially we tried to pose this problem as a how to optimize how to make um, the number of um, number of potential genotypes in, in like potential allele, alleles in the population as mm -hmm. maximal as possible so that basically for each so, so the idea was that for each position that can be heterozygous you want to keep it heterozygous but what was unexpected for me is that it doesn't matter how you cross the population, the number of the expected the expected number of positions that will be heterozygous in general population will be the same, and from that we had to switch to this uh, formulation when we have to optimize the number of heterozygotes inside the, each particular individual. So the, here we have two parts. So first we have genotypes, but we also have a, a recombination model that allows you to tell which how the genome position are correlated with each other in the offspring compared to the uh, your initial your initial generation and yeah so it's kind of similar to a best matching problem but with a nice twist of uh, random like nice twist of randomness there so I guess Gennady can tell how he solved it and I guess it's more or less what we expected it to be. Well, well, of course, of course, I will tell that. Yet again, yeah, the recombination model was mentioned in the problem. So it told you the probability of recombination between two positions on the same chromosome. But, uh, well, at least from my point of view, is during the contest, I think that it doesn't matter again. And I think that Again, uh, regardless of how recombination takes place, 
the expected number of positions you're looking for doesn't depend on the recombination model. How do you think? Do you think it's false? No, so actually, uh, the expected number of... So, based on the genotypes, what you can do, and I guess that's how Gennady solved it, at least part of the solution, is it uh, from given two genotypes of like one male, one female, you can find the expectation, find the expected number of uh, heterozygotes in the offspring. And this is a like exact number, and it indeed doesn't depend on recombination. So it only depends on the genotypes in in the corresponding position. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, so yeah. and from that you can get get a like matching with a maximal score, with maximal expected number. Yeah. And this is the standard assignment problem, which can be solved, for example, with Hungarian algorithm or some kind of minimum cost maximum flow. But yeah, so th this allows you to find the best pairing on expectation, right? But the problem asked you to find the pairing, uh, which is above, which generates at least some number of positions of good position, right? To get the full score. Yeah. And, uh, well, it was a bit weird because if you want your number of heterozygous positions to be above some threshold, you obviously, like, in most cases, you want to take the best on expectation because there's some random process. So it's reasonable to want the best on expectation pairing, but apparently it was not the case. Like, if you just do the best pairing, you didn't get the full score. Uh, it was a bit weird. I think that mm, you should. <laughs> it feels like you should. Well, and basically, yeah, yeah the, like the 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 thing was that uh, the random number generator seed was fixed. So with the same pairing, you always got the same number of positions. But if it was not fixed, I guess that if you just submitted the same best on expectation pairing enough times, you would get accepted at some point. Yeah. So our idea was that so what recombination model influences is uh, dispersion like variance of the number of okay. uh, number of heterozygote positions so idea was that and actually so, so basically you want to find a number of uh, pairings or like assignments with a high probability of getting the full score of getting the number of yeah, okay. Variance is actually interesting. So yeah, so do you want to get pairings with higher variance or lower variance? So you want, like if you look at, you know, some particular test case, like you want to get a, like 320 heterozygous position. So what you want to probably want to maximize is to maximize the probability of getting more than 320. Yeah, okay. And yeah, so that so the number of the submissions that you are making is not that high. So basically, yeah, okay. the, okay. the the idea was that uh, people can try to optimize, for example, expectation plus the one variance, like one sigma, and uh -huh. get something around and get the solutions around this value, like around this mm -hmm. maximal value of 
expectation plus variance. With high probability, yeah. Okay, that, that that's interesting. Yeah. But what what I, what I actually did was just generate several, like like you said, I guess I generated several good pairings and tried to combine them and yeah to maximize the score. So I guess the trade-off in this problem was a number of submissions that you are making. Yeah, I think that it should have been limited, <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least uh, time-wise, so that you can't make too many. Sub- like, for example, you can make at most one submission every five minutes or something like that, because otherwise you just can spam with different pairings and hope for the best. Yeah, but it still takes time, so. Takes time, yeah. So that, that it's still a trade-off, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like, what is better, just to uh, submit many solutions or find a slightly better algorithm and submit smaller number of submissions, or, or spend some time to to write a script that automatically submits random variants. <laughs> is it yeah. allowed? Are there any rules against it? <laughs> well, there, there is. There are no rules against it. Is at the moment. So, are there any rules at all? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, oh, there are some rules. Yeah, yeah there are some rules, right? Yeah. yeah, but for example, I guess for bacterial communities, you can use the number of transi- transversions that are reported. Transversions, yeah. To somehow optimize it a bit. Yeah, I think that solution. if you have a script, you can actually optimize it. To- yeah, so this is actually allowed for now at least. But yeah, I'm not sure how to write scripts. Do you have some API for Stepic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there is nothing yet. So at the point when, when uh, there will be a Stepic API, probably will <laughs> uh, disallow it. Yeah, I think as as long as they don't have an explicit capture or, or some kind of bot prevention. Yeah. Then it it shouldn't be hard just to reuse the authentication cookies. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll have to wrap this up. Uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time and you know being able to peek in, inside the the minds of the organizer and the winner of the contest. So thank you, and uh, I hope we'll uh, we'll meet at the next contest. I hope I hope it will happen. Yeah, of course. I hope it will happen too, because as I said, I was very interested in the problems. I hope to see some more of them. Yep, give it up. Yeah, and as an organizer, I can say that, well, we'll try to make it. (laughs) Yep. So thank you, Roman, for hosting us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Roman.